0: Is run by aliens working with our federal government to conduct mind control and genetic experiments. I'm leaving. I'm glad. Thanks, Live Society, for railroading my ass. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Erie Americas. This is Vicki Ayala.
1: And I'm Christy Hull. What up, people? How was your week? Ooh. Good, I guess. I mean, I'm just counting down till I see your faces. So you know, it's this—the week is finally arrived. Just a few
0: short days. I am so excited.
1: I know we're finally. I did all like-
0: my packing and my uh shopping today. As you guys know, I'm gonna go see Christy in Colorado. Not flying. One, I didn't like flying before COVID, and I definitely don't feel safe doing it now. So we are taking the ultimate road trip—27 hours of driving—to go see our our favorite person. Aww. And I don't drive. Um, I just have too much anxiety for it. So I am the commandeer of the snacks. So I literally went and spent like $125 on road trip snacks. Totally worth it. And it,
1: you're going to be done by like hour 24. So they'll be gone in no time.
0: I'm so happy that you think we'll make it to hour 24 <laughs> with these snacks. I bought a lot. I bought all different varieties once i finish packing i always feel like okay it's official it's happening that's always how it feels i can't wait to just throw my shit in a bag and be like my bags are packed and And i'm ready to go like
1: to feel like semi-normal i booked my flight for vicky's wedding reception so like knowing that in a few weeks we're gonna see each other week like weeks apart is super exciting because when you live in different time zones and coasts you never know when you're gonna see each other so it's nice that it's like a guaranteed thing so i'm super stoked about that too
0: Yes, that means and I went a year without seeing you and I'm going to see you twice. Yeah, and it's so exciting. It's cool. And, and then, as much as I love seeing you when we record and when we FaceTime to talk, nothing beats like the face, being the face. in the same room as a person. Never. Yeah. Um, so it's getting definitely test, we're all getting tested so I can give Christy a hug because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hugging her. It's going to happen. It's gonna, yeah, there's I'm no way I
1: cannot. I, there's yeah. no way
0: I'm not hugging you. So I haven't really hugged anybody this whole quarantine definitely. except for my sister and my husband. So be prepared for me to make it awkward. Making it awkward.
1: Yeah. Don't be happen. surprised if I cry. So I'm letting you know. I'm going to cry. It's been an official year since I've lived in my apartment. So it's pretty cool. You were moving into so, your
0: apartment
1: a year mm-hmm. ago. And then to speaking of which too, like Vicky had trouble. She wanted to talk about this as well, but oh, yeah. she didn't have Wi-Fi for a few days and she was flipping out. I didn't have it for the first five days here. So we were surviving on like DVDs and like our, our phones for some form of entertainment. So we had like our bed. And our phones and a couple, yeah, a couple DVDs from my laptop that we would watch. And so I know I can survive it. But Vicky was struggling. No. no,
0: I have always wanted to be one of those people that says, oh, I can survive without my phone. I don't really, if my Wi-Fi cuts out, I'll be OK. Because we had a really big storm in New York last week and people were losing power. And I was like, if I lost power, I'd totally be OK. I would not be OK. I'm going to have to admit I am a technology whore. I don't remember what life was like back when we had to use dial-up. I have no idea. I haven't had Wi-Fi since I think Wednesday night. It is Sunday afternoon and we got our Wi-Fi back earlier today and I wanted to freaking shoot someone. I did not realize (laughs) how much I needed my Wi-Fi. I worked from home on my hotspot on my phone. It sucked because I don't, pay attention to the TV all the time when it's on but I like having the noise. I like having something on and I told Christy I was like I was sitting here in dead silence and it was so quiet and I felt like I could hear my brain working and I just I couldn't do it. So I was like, "Oh my god, I need to get my fucking Wi-Fi back." And so when the guy came today, I almost hugged a random stranger being like, "Oh my god, you are giving me my Wi-Fi back." I didn't even, I had so many errands to run today that I purposely ran them late because I just wanted to connect all my stuff to Wi-Fi so I could stop using my fucking hotspot. I, I have to admit, I don't know what I would, I can't survive with that Wi-Fi. So
1: what you're saying is, is you could never go on that show alone.
0: No, no. Why would I do that? Why? Why would I do that? I will absolutely not. Absolutely, no, I don't even care. Dollars. You could tell me you're going to give me $10 million and I'd be like, no, nah, I need my Wi-Fi. Like I can't. And I'm one of those people who I will tell everybody right now, my name is Victoria, I am 34 years old, and I am scared of the dark. I do not go to sleep in the dark. I have to have the television on. You can turn it off when I'm sleeping, but if I wake up and it's off, I am flipping my shit and I'm going to put it back on. I was falling asleep with my husband's iPad in my lap because it would hook up to my hotspot. And that's how I fall asleep. So every day my husband would come home and take his iPad out of the grips of my hand that I was holding with like gorilla strength because I was like, oh my god, something works. And that's how I was falling asleep every day. And so I just have to say, I cannot survive without Wi-Fi. And I would never <laughs> go on alone or a survivor or any any show that will involve me trying to survive in the wild. There's a zombie apocalypse. You could probably use me for like some sort of logic stuff because I'm very logical, but don't ask me to do any survivor shit. It's just not going to happen. I nope. love
1: how you're comparing having no Wi Fi to being in survival Yeah, in a zombie apocalypse. That's exactly yeah, what it that's, is. That's how she feels. That's how badly she needs her Wi Fi, guys. So funny. Yes, Kills I need my
0: Wi Fi so bad that I just compare not having Wi Fi to being in the wild. <laughs> to like hunting your own food. That's like the same. I would rather hunt my own food than have no Wi Fi because at least I can YouTube how to do it. True. Okay, so let me get into my Reddit. The username is kvaternik13, and the Reddit is titled, my first and only ghost slash monster story. This is my first post on Reddit, so I figured I should post something semi-interesting. This happened to me about five years ago. I was in sixth grade, but this occurred during the summer break. At the time, I loved watching a a show on Sci-Fi channel called Fact or Foe, something like that. For those who aren't familiar with the show, it's about debunking paranormal mm-hmm. viral videos. I, I know which show this is. Anyways, my best friend Mark and I decided to explore an underground garage that was close to our, our houses. We were trying to capture something paranormal or supernatural. People stop looking for it to happen if it's not happening already. We brought flashlights with us and waited till about 8 p.m. to explore the garage. We figured it would be better to explore in the dark. We went into the garage and it was pitch blackness, so we turned on our flashlights. The garage was under a big building, so it was huge since it was shared by everyone in the building. After we entered the garage, I could feel that the air was significantly colder than outside, but I didn't think anything of it. After a few minutes of wandering in the dark, we got bored and started to walk to the exit. Just as we were about to exit, the lights turned on in the garage. We stopped and turned around to see if anybody was there. At this point, I was calm and was thinking that it must be someone from the building going to their car or something like that. But then when we turned, we were shocked. And I'll never forget what I saw that day. It was a man, or at least I think it was a human, about seven feet tall, wearing a white dress. I couldn't make out his facial features. Uh -uh. He was walking very slowly and creepily. My friend and I were just standing there, frozen with fear. The man, or woman, I don't know, stopped. And the lights turned off. I remember chills running down my spine as we heard a laugh from a direction from where it was standing. We were running all the way to my friend's house. We couldn't sleep that night, and we were trying to figure out who or what we saw. To this day, I sometimes wonder what the hell that thing was and what its intentions were.
1: I almost wish that they had described what it looked like in a little more detail. Like, was it clear? Was it, could you see through the person or things? Just tall...
0: White dress, no facial features, but I'm just like, this is what happens when you go looking for shit. I get it. I'm totally open to paranormal experiences, but I'm not going to go seeking it out. If it happens, it happens, but I'm not going to go looking for it.
1: It will find you. Trust me. Exactly.
0: It's like, if you go looking for it, it's going to happen. Like, just, if it's not happening, leave it alone. It's scary. No matter how much you like it or how open you are to it, it's still scary. So... As much as I'm open to it, I know it exists. I don't necessarily want it to happen to me. So I would never go looking for it.
1: I'm good. Thank you. My few experiences were more than enough. Right. And we didn't go looking
0: for our experiences. So I'm like, I'm certainly not going to go looking for this shit. Definitely not. This shit's already found me.
1: I'm with a lot of people right now about not being 100% sure what my future holds. I know that we all feel that way, but it's especially true for those of us who aren't stable in a job market. I think it's times like these that let your imagination soar at the possibilities of escaping the life of needing to earn money. Not not having money, but to do one big thing, one grand plan, even if it isn't legal. In many cases, these are just fantasies many of us carry in our minds while having to tolerate and take on other people's issues and getting paid for it. But there have been instances in time where people took their chance, made a plan, knowing full well what the consequences may be. Some have gotten away with it. Many more have not. These are known as heists, also known as robberies. The Robin Hood figures we secretly admire, like Bonnie and Clyde, D.B. Cooper, and even the supposed Pink Panther group in France who stole all of Kim Kardashian West's precious jewels, we all have to admit there's some part of us that admires and envies those who get away with these life-changing amount of loot. Sure, it's about the cash or the potential to earn cash, but there's more behind it. It's really the adrenaline and the payout. And that's the deep-seated truth. That's what we really like. I guess a few people have put it in their heads and found someone's fortune to claim as their own. Here are some some of history's greatest heists and more intriguing robberies that are less told, but just as interesting as whatever you've heard before.
0: It's just the first thing I'm thinking before even hearing this is every time that someone needs anything and they're like, what do you want me to do? Rob a bank? And it's like they say that for a reason, because if you could get away with it, I think most people would do it. It's like the one crime that I think most people would do if they thought they could get away with. And it. And there's
1: so many of us that say, hey, if I had starving kids, I would go rob so and so or I would do this. Like, you know, there are people that you put that in your head.
0: It's a little bit less like, because when you think about it, you're thinking of robbing the bank, not a person. There's no real harm behind it. You're going to the bank, this big corporation where there's a bunch of money that doesn't necessarily to you belong to anyone. And you're like, I'm going to go take it. Because to me, as someone who would never hurt another person, that seems like the only fucking crime that you could do and actually not really hurt anyone. I mean, I'm sure people get hurt during them, but the thought process behind it isn't like, I'm going to go kill someone. I'm going to go beat someone up for their bike. Like there's no
1: person behind it. Exactly. Always remember when I was a kid, I used to be a lot more like, no, things are that's right. And that's wrong. You know, when you're a kid, you're very adamant about like what's good and what's bad. Right.
0: Because the, they, they always teach you as a kid, like this is right and this is wrong. So it's very black and white to you as a kid.
1: But I remember the first time I distinctly remember watching Point Break, which is one of my favorite Keanu Reeves films of all times. I love it. Swayze's in it. And I remember they were interviewing the the presidential robbers. For the kids that don't know this movie, please Google it. It's a great film. Got to check it out. But I remember, I think it was Swayze's character who said, because the reporter was like, well, don't you feel guilty? Like you're robbing the people and you're robbing, you know, your community and your fellow man. And the guy said, well, newsflash, the FDIC covers up to $100,000 in people's personal accounts. If I do steal from people, most people will get their money back. And for those people that have over $100,000 in their account, they can afford it. And I was but like, that's the, But that's what it is. No harm, no foul. It blew my yeah. mind as a kid. I had never thought of no harm, no foul. Because
0: it became so not black and white to you anymore. Because then you were just like, wait, maybe there is a circumstance that I'd be willing to break the
1: law. And we all have put it in our heads, but a few people, very Everybody few Everybody has a it.
0: situation that they would be like, oh, for that, I would do it. Everybody has it.
1: So the first one I found off of Ozzy, O-Z-Y dot com. And this is a bank called Banco Central in Brazil. At 6 p.m. on Friday, August 6, 2005, in downtown Fortaleza, Avenida Dom Manuel was packed with Brazilians racing home to shower and eat before crowding into the beach huts lining the boardwalk of this coastal city. Little did they know, 13 feet beneath the asphalt, one of the greatest heists in history was already underway. Three months earlier in 05, a group of men, a.k.a. the robbers, rented a property that would act as their cover. They set up a shop posing as a landscape company with a hilarious name, Synthetic Grass. (laughs) During the investigation and question later, neighbors didn't think much of the new business or the trucks filled with 30 tons of dirt that drove in and out for weeks. What was most important to the men who rented this specific shop posing as landscaper's was that it was a few blocks away from the Banco Central in Fortaleza. From there on, they spent three months digging a tunnel about 256 feet long and 13 feet below a street level from their office directly below the bank. The tunnel was roughly 2.3 feet or 70 centimeters square and running 13 feet or 4 meters beneath the surface. And according to Wikipedia, it was well-constructed. It was lined with wood and plastic and had its own lighting and air circulation Holy systems. Holy shit, they
0: really, they went in on this. They
1: went in. They created an underground bunker and it was basically just like a street underneath the streets. In a matter of one weekend, they used the tunnel to get into Banco Central. Not only that, but they also managed to avoid and disable all the bank's sensors thanks to a hot tip from a bank employee because that's the one thing you always need an inside if you
0: really really want to get away with it and formulate a really really good plan where someone doesn't like die in the process because because you're not prepared you definitely always need an inside man for sure
1: from there they broke through the nearly four feet of steel reinforced concrete to enter the vault and stole five containers weighing more than seven thousand pounds worth of money holy shit and worth, are you ready for this, 164,755,150 reals, which is approximately 71.6 million U.S. dollars at the 2005 exchange rate. Holy so, crap. 72 million dollars almost. And weighing roughly 3.5 And tons. they did this in plain sight. Well, plain sight underground. Right. The best part was the bank was closed on the weekends. So it wasn't until Monday morning that bank employees knew anything that
0: happened. They like literally did the perfect thing. You had a whole weekend to figure out how you were going to, like, what are you going to do with this?
1: a weekend to move 7,000 pounds worth of money and they successfully did it. And by then, the robbers had fled the area. Like, of they course weren't gonna they had. You had
0: two whole days.
1: When police began investigating, they realized the plan was in motion the entire time because the landscaping shop had sophisticated equipment, including GPS, experts in mathematics, engineering, and excavation. So they hired pros. They,
0: I'm sorry, they, they, I know this is going to sound horrible, please don't judge me. They kind of deserve it. Like, you guys worked really hard. (laughs) I'm sorry, you did this shit. Like, I can't.
1: Police located a pickup truck branded with the Grama Sintética synthetic turf logo, found at the rented property. Bolt cutters, a blowtorch, an electric saw, and other tools used to penetrate the con- the concrete barrier were found both inside the vault and within the empty property. They literally just bounced. They left everything. They were like, we're out. For
0: what? They got what they came for. They yep. just fled.
1: The tunnel they had dug, filling all those truckloads, was a masterful engineering project. And that's why you said they deserve it, because like, this really was work they hired experts they knew to do it. they weren't just like all right we know they're closed
0: weekends so let's go and do this they, let's dig a they hole. did this mm-hmm. expertly
1: 28 inches in diameter complete with wooden beams ladders plastic lining wiring air conditioning ventilation the works the cash had been pulled manually through the tunnel which police estimated had to cost nearly two hundred thousand dollars to construct via basin secured to ropes squeaking through a pulley system so they literally just, like, did the old school pulley method of loading up money, pulling, up I'm just, like, so, money, like, pulling. impressed
0: with them knowing, like, I'm impressed with the fact that they even had air conditioning because they knew they were going to get hot doing this. <laughs>
1: like, I can't. Well, get this. Even more smartly, the shop was covered in burnt lime. Why? To avoid fingerprints. So anything they touched, that is so there would fucking be no I, I
0: I can't. <laughs> I almost want to commit a crime to see if I get away with it, but I won't do it.
1: You can't even hate, right? Like, no, the-
0: I'm sorry, but you ha- <laughs> I don't care who you are. You have to appreciate the fucking skill that went into this shit. You have to appreciate it. If you don't appreciate it, you're a fucking liar, or you're a little jealous that you can't, you could not figure Thank out you how yourself. to do this yourself.
1: <laughs> the story doesn't stay in their favor, though, as you were gonna ask, because damn it. Two mistakes did lead to their ultimate demise. As OZY reports, Quote, outside, police would later find a large amount of white powder chalk the robbers had used to cover their fingers. So like, I guess on the outside. Right. And they nearly succeeded except for one print. Their first look. Fuck. The second mistake, a member of the gang bought 10 cars at once the following day. Did
0: we not learn from mafia movies that you don't go and you don't you're not ostentatious about it. You keep it low key. Don't you remember, was it in Goodfellas or Casino, Goodfellas? Yes. where the woman who comes with like a fur coat and the pink car and they're like, you don't do that.
1: You don't buy shit the day after a robbery. Everyone knows that. But he paid cash raising the red flags in this very poor region of Brazil. Duh. Ten cars? You couldn't have just bought one? Ten. Just one car. What do you mean ten cars for? Well, you'll see. Cops caught up with the trailer that held all these cars. In another state, carrying the other purchase cars. And inside three of the ve- vehicles were bundled of 50 real bills. So they were using it, to, were using stuff it to move in the money. They were using to move the money. Yeah. But I mean, 10 in the same spot, go to different states. Like Brazil's, like the, the United States. like That's you can what I'm go saying. to different states. Buy a car
0: here and then go somewhere else and buy a car there and then go somewhere else and buy a car there and spread it out over an amount of time where it doesn't look so suspicious. And don't buy like a super expensive one either. Buy something that it doesn't look weird if you right. spend that amount of money. Make it something that Make it a so, trip thing. like,
1: obvious. Piece of shit used car that's going to get your money out, and that's it, and you can abandon somewhere. If your
0: only, like, purpose was to move the money, just get a hoopty. Like, you don't need... Like, that. nobody's going to raise a red flag because you bought a, a cheap car.
1: That's the thing. I'm not sure if this guy just bought 10 cars for himself and stuffed his share into it. Might it might have like, been. Like, that wasn't very clear. Or if this was the plan was to use all these cars to separate. Who Like, it's never really been confirmed. But it, c- probably
0: because the plan never
1: materialized.
0: But either way, this guy
1: fucked up because not only did he fuck it up by getting caught with the cars, he squealed, taking down the group. So, oh, you don't sketch We know this too. This guy never saw oh, Goodfellas, that's for he sure. He shouldn't have been part of the gang. As with most heists, they had an inside man the bank employee I mentioned was the one who tipped them off to the location of the motion sensors, alarms, and the fact that cameras were filmed but did not record. So
0: why did you help them rob the bank if you were
1: just going to tell on them later? Well, I think the guy that got caught, he must have squealed on the bank teller. The bank tolder must have told the truth. It just takes one person to open their mouth. It's, yeah,
0: it's us. Because at that point, he was probably like, all right, somebody already told right. them. I might as well tell what I know.
1: And shockingly, there's even political corruption here. Oh, <gasps> fake gasp. Like, no, no um, way. Sh- you see my shocked face? This is my shocked face. The mayor of Boa Viagem, podunk town south of Fortaleza, was also in on it and had fronted some of the money to build the tunnel. I was
0: going to say they built a $200,000 tunnel. Where did that money come from? But there I you figured go. you were going to
1: tell me. Which made the town a nice hideout also for many of the suspects because everyone was in on it like they knew who they were. So that's a good place to hide after the robbery. And it's not super far from where it just happened. Three dozen of them were accused and 26 ended up in jail for 133 different crimes. There's a couple different guys, but I like the names. I I like the people that had awesome nicknames. So I'll refer to those guys (laughs) that got caught. There's Armadillo, nickname for his digging skills. Who was nabbed at his favorite bakery in Sao Paulo and was sentenced to 17 years, but somehow reduced it to two. Don't know how. Because
0: he was a fucking genius. That was He was probably one of the people who was the experts that didn't leave his fingerprint outside because he was fucking smart. That is why he only got two yep. years. And honestly, if I was only going to get two years in jail, I, I might risk it.
1: For, 20, For $71, $71 million, million? I think I'd risk it. Yeah. I can come out and never have to work again. I wouldn't. I'd be like, yeah, I'm an ex-con. So I don't know. Because I'm pretty
0: sure that the police almost never recover all the money. And if you found a good way to hide it,
1: mm -hmm. we'll get there. So then there's also Big Boss, the tunnels engineer. He escaped from prison in 2011 and is still on the
0: run. I'm not even surprised because look at what (laughs) he did. I am, Did you,
1: you really thought he you could easily escape a Brazilian he prison? He
0: constructed a whole fucking thing and you thought that he wouldn't figure out a way to get out of prison? That is your own fucking fault. That's your own fault. Mm Not even, I'm not even mad about it.
1: He needs to be in a max padded place where there's no concrete anywhere. But of course, they probably made that mistake. He probably just needed like a he five just, inch square e- space of concrete. and He, he just needed his, his genius brain and he figured it out. But oddly enough, things might have turned out best for those who stuck in prison. Because while on the lam, this guy named Little Fernando was kidnapped, held for ransom, and subsequently killed, his body found on a rural roadside covered in bullets. So people who knew the robbers were going to start robbing them, of course, course, because they have all this money. They have all that money. The fallout of this decades-old crime is, in fact, still playing out. The ringleader, a.k.a. the German was arrested in Brasilia three years later and slapped with a lengthy sentence. More recently, a judge found him guilty of money laundering and tacked on an additional 80 years. So he's going to jail for the rest of his life. I didn't even want to look up their real names. I was happy I'm, I'm, knowing I'm really okay na- with the German. I'm good. There's only one name. Antonio Reginaldo de Arujo, who police believed had become a narco-trafficking kingpin of a Sao Paulo neighborhood, escaped jail on Father's Day 2014 but was recaptured that summer driving a car packed with cocaine and cell phones. So he took his money. He, li- he
0: was living on his dream. He just needed the money for it.
1: Are you ready? In the end, $20 million of the $165 million, about $8 million of the $70 million, was recovered, making it the biggest robbery in Brazil's history.
0: That money is
1: buried somewhere, for sure. Oh, well, get this. According to the police chief in, the, in charge of the investigation, Antonio dos Santos... Quote, there's no way to recover more of the money now that so much time has passed. Some say the bills are buried in the desert. But if you visit the tiny, tiny, teeny, tiny town of Boa Vigram, keep your eye out for new construction, because according to the town's quite a few pop up. after Well, duh.
0: But at that point, especially the one who was accused of money laundering, they found a way to clean that money and change those bills. So there's no way you're ever going to find it. It's all over Brazil. For all they know, they have some of that money in their
1: own pocket. It's gone into construction. It's probably gone into drugs. It's probably gone into sex, sex trafficking. It's probably gone into real legitimate businesses. Like, there's no way you to recover all that I'm money. Not mad at it's those just guys. not possible.
0: Not, not mad at it. See, now I would never do it because I would never do it that well. So now, like, you kind of, like, it's like, <laughs> why even
1: try? That's my thing. You have to be so, so good at it. But this next case, you'll, you'll actually might enjoy for that exact purpose. Sometimes it's not cash outright. One of my favorite, very long quotes from The Office comes from Dwight Schrute when he asked, What is his perfect crime? For those few weirdos that may not watch the show, I'll only semi-quote it. It's, what is my perfect crime? I break into Tiffany's at midnight. Do I go for the vault? No, I go for the chandelier. It's priceless. Yep, Dwight was smart. Pros know that money isn't the only thing that can be stolen for a hefty profit. Some things are obviously valuable if you know how to sell it and how to get it. A prime example of this is art, which is exactly what happened in Boston, Massachusetts in 1990. This heist begins in the wee hours of Sunday, March 18th, 1990, which happened to be St. Patrick's Day. The thieves were first seen by witnesses around 1230 a.m. by many St. Patrick's Day partygoers leaving the party near a museum. Two men were dressed as police officers parked in a hatchback on Palace Road about 100 feet from the side entrance. And it must have been some real unis because witnesses believe them to be real cops, even though they weren't in a cop car. Two museum guards on duty that night were Rick Abbott, then aged 23, and Randy Heston, then age 25. Rick was a regular night watchman, and it was Randy's first night on the job. Bad night to start a new job. The security policy for the museum was that one guard patrolled the galleries with a flashlight and a walkie-talkie while the others sat at the security desk so this is just like standard procedure for i them. gotta
0: tell you that's not very much to guard anything with that's not like a weapon like what we what are you gonna do hit him with a flashlight like
1: oh yeah walkie-talkie it in like someone's in the uh, we're getting someone's robbed here. let me hit him with the flashlight <laughs> rick who is the guy that's been working there went first on patrol. During his first walk, fire alarms sounded off in different rooms in the museum, but he couldn't locate any fire or smoke. He returned to the security room where the fire alarm panel indicated smoke in multiple rooms, which was strange because he was just walking around and he hadn't seen it, so he didn't understand. So, it's was just know, the fire alarms going off. going off. Okay. Yeah. He assumed there was some kind of malfunction and shut down the panel. He went back on patrol and before he completed his rounds, made a quick stop at the side entrance of the museum, opened the side door and shut it again. He didn't tell Randy why he was doing this or that he was even doing it. So I found that kind of stuff. It's a little weird. Because I'm like, they parked on the side entrance. What made you feel compelled to just open it and then reclose it? Are you a part of this? And if I don't you really know.
0: felt compelled to do that, why wouldn't you just tell the other?
1: Randy. Yeah. Yeah. Why would you not let him know, hey, going to check the side and make sure no one's there or heard the alarms. going to double check. Mm, you were letting like, someone in. Well, you would think so, but that's not exactly what happened. Rick did this round, returned to the security desk around one in the morning, at which point Randy began his walkabout. So one guy comes back, the other guy goes. That's just kind of like their standard thing. At 1.20 a.m., the thieves drove, drove up against the side entrance, parked, and walked up to the side door. They rang the buzzer, which connected them t- to Rick through the intercom. They explained to them that they were police investigating a disturbance and needed to be buzzed in. And I thought, OK, that kind of makes sense, given the alarms that off. That does make sense because the alarms were going off. Right. As a security, I'd be like, OK, maybe the security alarm system gave them a call. You There's know?
0: alarm systems that trigger the call to the police. And then if nobody like turns them off within a certain amount of time, the police just automatically come. I had that with like ADT, I think.
1: Gotcha. So Rick could see them on. And to confirm that there were police, Rick could see them on a closed circuit television wearing what appeared to be legit police uniforms. These uniforms must
0: have been really, really good.
1: Yeah. Though alarms had gone off, he was not aware of any disturbance, but theorized that it was St. Patrick's Day and maybe there was like a rager who had climbed the fence and someone seen it, reported it. You know, there's a million things that could have been the possibility for a police to be called. And
0: normally when police just tell you that they're investigating disturbance, you don't really question it. You're just kind of like, oh,
1: okay, great. Rick let the officers in at 1.24 a.m. The thieves were let into a locked foyer that separated the side door from the museum. So not quite in the museum yet. Right. They approached Rick at his desk and asked if anyone else was in the museum and to bring them down. So Rick at that point radioed Randy to come back to the security desk. And Rick then noticed the mustache on the taller man seemed to be fake. Like he just kind of realized he's like that looks. You ruined your whole good costume, dude. Why? It makes sense when dudes shave their beards or their mustache. They look like different people to me. They look
0: like different people. But like you got to make sure your fake mustache doesn't look that fake.
1: Exactly. Have a legit one at least, or at least grow one. Don't be fucking lazy. Listen, the
0: whole other robbery built a whole underground tunnel. You can grow a mustache for your robbery.
1: The shorter man told Rick that he looked familiar, that he may have a warrant for his arrest, and to come out from behind the desk and provide information. Rick did as he was told, but not thinking about the fact that he was stepping away from the desk where the only panic button to alert the police was. Of course he was. (laughs) The shorter burglar forced Rick against the wall, spread his legs, and handcuffed him. Rick took note that he was not frisked. Randy at this point walked into the room and the taller thief turned around on him and handcuffed him. Once both guards were handcuffed, the thieves revealed their true motives to rob the museum and asked the guards to, quote, not give them any problems. The thieves wrapped the duct tape around the heads and the eyes of the guards. So brutal, but efficient because they can't really see what they're doing. They can't describe what they look like any further. They got a quick glimpse. They can't communicate with each other without asking for directions, which is important to say. They led the guards into the basement where they were handcuffed to a steam pipe and a workbench. Kind of like they already knew the place pretty well. Something to point out. Yeah. The thieves examined the wallets of the guards and explained that they now know where they lived and not to tell authorities anything, and they would get a reward in about a year. So they're trying to basically pay them off for their silence. That's another right, pretty good tactic off. because now they're scared. The process from knock to promise of reward took 11 minutes, and it was now about 1.35 a.m. The thieves' movement through the museum was not recorded; was not unrecorded on video, but infrared motion detectors, so they can see where they were in each room, which I find super fascinating. This was the 90s. I can't even imagine what they have yeah. now. Steps in the first room they entered, called the Dutch room on the second floor, were not recorded until 1.48. So this was a 13-minute delay after they finished subduing the hmm. guard. The theory is is that maybe they waited to make sure the police weren't somehow called. So just to make sure that they could flee. That makes, that makes sense then. Really smart thinking. They were like, let's not just start robbing right away. Let's give us just a few minutes. As the thieves approached the paintings in the Dutch room, a device began beeping that would normally trip when a patron was too close to a painting, but the thieves smashed it. They took Storm of the Sea of Galilee and Lady and Gentleman in Black, both of those are Rembrandts, and threw them on the marble floor, shattering the protective glass frames. Using a blade, they cut the canvases out of the stretchers. They also removed a large Rembrandt self-portrait oil painting from the wall, but left it leaning against the cabinet for some unknown reason, but investigators kind of surmised that they might have considered it too big to transport because it was painted on wood. Not like the other canvases. Right. They couldn't tear it out and like roll it into like posters like most places. It was on wood. Right, right. On the right side of the room, they removed Landscape with Obelisk by artist Flink and The Concert by Vermeer from their frames. The final piece taken from that specific room, the Dutch room, was an ancient Chinese goo. At 1.51 a.m., while one thief continued working in the Dutch room, the other entered a narrow hallway dubbed the Short Gallery on the end of the second floor. The other thief, like, soon joined him to continue the robbery. In this room, they began removing screws from a frame, displaying a Napoleonic flag, likely in an effort to steal the flag. But they appeared to give up halfway through because not all the the screws were removed, and they only took, like, the eagle finale on the top of the flagpole. So, you know, there's usually, like, those little, like, copper eagles. It was probably just too hard for them to remove, and it was costing too much time, and they had to move on. They also took five pieces from a personal favorite artist of mine, Dega. The last work stolen was Chez Tortoni by Manet from the Blue Room on the first floor. The museum motion detectors did not detect any motion within the Blue Room during the thieves time in the building, which I still don't understand how that how they weren't caught. Me either. The only footsteps detected in the room that night were Rex during the two times he passed through the gallery on the patrol before the robbery. So I mm. don't know how they disarmed it or disabled it, but these guys because knew what they were doing. Because each
0: floor had their own sensors, right? So them smashing the sensor in the other room would wouldn't have affected
1: another. And that room. was only for an individual painting, right? If people get too close to a painting, it goes off, and that's it that's very alarm.
0: strange. And that just shows that their their security was like whatever they it wasn't it wasn't good enough.
1: Yep. But as they prepare to leave, the thieves checked on the guards one last time and asked if they were comfortable. Thoughtful, I suppose. I guess. You put duct tape around their face. It's like when your
0: kidnapper asks you if you're hungry. It's like, uh, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Then they moved to the security director's office where they took the video cassettes that recorded their entrance at the, c- the closed c- circuit camera and the data printouts from the motion detecting equipment. No evidence of where they were. Through. The movement data was still captured on a hard drive, though, which remains untouched. So somehow they missed the hard drive. Maybe they just didn't know it was a feature. Maybe they didn't know it was there. Yep. The frame for Shea Tortini was left also at the security director's desk, which I find really interesting. Like, they just kind of left it. Maybe they determined
0: it was too heavy? or they No, they they just
1: left the frame. It was like a mockery. Oh, they probably did that on purpose. Like, screw you. The thieves then moved to take the artwork out of the museum. The side entrance doors were opened at 2.40 a.m. and again for the last time at 2.45 a.m. The entire robbery lasted only 81 minutes and took a total of 13 pieces of timeless art. The next shift or guards later in the morning showed up and realized something was wrong when they couldn't get in touch with anyone to get inside the building. They called in the security director who, upon entering the building with the keys, found nobody at the watch desk and called police. The police searched the building until they found the guards still tied in the basement. So, question is, have these guys ever been caught and is the artwork back safe? According to the Gardner website itself, quote, Despite some promising leads in the past, the Gardner theft of 1990 remains unsolved. The museum, the FBI, and the U.S. Attorney's Office are still seeking viable leads that could result in the safe return of the art. The museum is offering a reward of $10 million for information leading directly to the recovery. That's
0: nothing compared to how much this artwork is, is worth.
1: Totally. But it's th- $10 million is a lot for any human that might come across as right. like a normal person. To the recovery of the 13 works in a condition, a separate reward of $100,000 is being offered to the return of the Eagle Finial. Anyone with information about the stolen artwork or the investigation should contact the Gardner Museum directly. Confidentiality and and anonymity is guaranteed, end quote. Never got caught. See, I
0: have a little bit more of an issue with this robbery, and I'll tell you why. Because at least with the money, you could wash the money out, you could use it. What are you going to do with some of the world's most famous paintings? At this
1: point, you can't sell them or you'll be caught. So what exactly was the point in robbing them? Well, there's actually a lot that I'm glad you asked that. I didn't write it down because I actually know the history about some of this because I remember, again, huge Unsolved Mysteries fan. Watch the reruns a lot. There are tons of art robberies throughout the world because there are wealthy people that are willing to buy from thieves and they'll just keep it in like an underground bunker. So this is just
0: sitting in someone's living room, probably?
1: It could be like Melinda Gates equally rich CFO. He has like a basement chamber of artwork. That's literally what I've heard some very wealthy people have done.
0: So maybe this Robbie was better than the first because nobody opened their mouth.
1: Yep. And not only that, they cleared everything. They didn't leave an ounce. There's no clear description of these guys. There's no video of them. There's no no fingerprints. There's no fingerprints. There's no closed circuit data. All there was was four witnesses or five witnesses, maybe a few people that saw them going in and out. And the two guys that had duct tape around their eyes. Thing lasted eighty one minutes. They only saw them for a, like the first five, maybe. So yeah, these guys got away. And with this it. was what
0: in nineteen ninety.
1: Nineteen ninety. No pieces have been recovered. They're still looking. If you see one, call the museum because you will be rich really fast. The final heist to me is so hilariously brilliant. It could only come from one of my favorite places on earth, good old Canada. Aside from being one of the first countries to legalize green, aka marijuana, there is another type of commodity that Canadians pride themselves on. And given how much of it was stolen, I can only assume how seriously people take this maple syrup. You know what's
0: funny? I said it in my head, but I thought it was so ridiculous that I didn't say it out loud. I'm like, what they do steal maple syrup.
1: Exactly. That's right. The stuff we put on pancakes, French toast, or supplement a sweetener proves that sometimes it's not outright cash and art that can be as resourceful as a truly masterful robbery, which became known as the great Canadian maple syrup heist. So I found this on Wiki and some on vice. So, for those of us unfamiliar with Canadian practices, here's an origin story from Wikipedia that can show you how serious they are about this amber gold In 1966, a group of maple syrup producers in Quebec participated in a joint plan to collectively market maple syrup. This effort inspired the formation of a larger agreement all across Quebec, which became known as the Federation of Quebec Maple syrup Producers the. F- P-A-Q, maintains a strategic reserve of maple syrup, officially known as the ISR or International Strategic Reserve across multiple warehouses in rural Quebec towns. So very important to note, they actually keep things aside, you know, in case they run low, in case whatever happens, they have it there. Fast forward to 2011 and someone decided, you know what, this is mine. Over the course of several months between 2011 and 2012, the contents of 9,571 barrels valued at 18.7 million Canadian dollars, roughly 14 million American, was stolen in a suspected insider job, the FPAQ facility in St. blanc Quebec. At $2,000 per barrel, around 13 times more the price of crude oil, it was a significant theft. The syrup was stored in unmarked white metal barrels, inspected only one time a year.
0: See, that's the problem. It was unmarked and it wasn't inspected.
1: They knew that it would sit there for the entire year. How would they know it would go missing? Right. Thieves used the trucks to transport barrels to a remote sugar shack, where they siphoned off the maple syrup, refilled the barrels with water, then returned them to the facility. You
0: know, that reminds me of a funny story. I'll tell you real quick. When I was younger, my parents had a china cabinet with liquor at the bottom. And one year, they had a Christmas party with their friends and went to go serve them some alcohol and all the bottles were filled with water because my brother had drank it all.
1: Oh yeah, and you fill it up slowly but surely with water. I mean, this is you stealing from your mom and dad slash your company.
0: I just find it funny that like I'm picturing people siphoning fucking maple syrup. Like that's
1: hilarious. Yeah, story. and then replacing it with water. So like it's literally like a child like trying to hide the fact that they, they just drank mom know, and dad's they alcohol. They just drank mom and dad's alcohol. That's the perfect. That's the perfect way to like compare it. But this is way more expensive than oh yeah booze. As the operation continued. these began siphoning syrup directly off barrels in the reserve without refilling them so now like
0: they didn't even care they're not even trying to hide it it.
1: yeah that's how confident they got the stolen syrup was tucked to the south also known as vermont and the east new brunswick canada not new jersey where it was trafficked in many small batches to reduce suspicion so like they even broke it down to smaller they didn't try to sell a whole barrel and make it out they trafficked maple syrup maple syrup oh they did In the fall of 2012, the FPAQ took their annual inventory of syrup barrels. Inspector Mike Garvoreau started climbing up the barrels and nearly fell, expecting the 600 pounds barrels to hold him up, but finding them to be empty. (laughs) So like this guy's climbing up up and the barrels are falling. He's like, what the hell? This should be full of syrup. Like I should not be falling right now. Police later recovered hundreds of barrels of the syrup from the exporter based in Kedgwick, New Brunswick. The investigation led to 26 arrests and more than 200 witness interviews, creating a bizarre story surrounding one of Quebec's major and sweetest resources. Between December 18th and 20th, 2012, police arrested 17 men related to the theft. So I'll give you like a handful of the people. There is Richard Vallieri's accused ringleader sentenced in April 2017 to eight years in prison plus a $9.4 million Canadian dollar fine with an extension to 14 years if the fine is not paid. He claimed an unnamed guy had forced him to buy the stolen syrup and replace it with water after being threatened oh, by a no-name guy? The really? guy okay, carrying cool. a gun. Yeah, said that that's what it Seems was. Seems legit. Raymond Valerie's, Richard's own dad, was convicted of possession. Ooh, so,
0: father-son-jump.
1: Yeah, this unnamed man and your father <laughs> all, all forced you to do this, right? Etienne St. Pierre, a New Brunswick-based syrup reseller, so I guess he knew it was stolen avik karan the insider because you always need the insider whose spouse owned the fpaq warehouse sentenced to five years in prison plus $1. Wait, million their spouse fine. owned it their spouse owned it and they helped Ooh, them steal that's some betrayal right there and then there's sebastian Jutras, a trucker involved in the transport of stolen syrup he served eight months in prison the men had previously spoken out against the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup, an organization that fixes maple syrup prices, imposes production quotas on producers and enforces other regulations. So a lot of people think this was them trying to like Robin Hood it back Stick it to the yeah, man. and like Robin Hood it back, like steal from them because they they think they can impose all this other stuff on us. Fuck them. We're going to make our money and sell it to the people. For some, the Heist was seen as an act of defiance against the sanctioned state sanctioned monopoly of the Federation, sometimes refers to as Canada's maple syrup cartel. So they look at them as like this cartel because they control, according to this article on Culture Trip, Quebec's maintenance maintains an important history and culture surrounding maple syrup. To the extent that nowadays maple syrup production in the province accounts for 75% of the global flow of maple syrup, the industry has an in excess of 400 million dollars in annual sales. The second leading region is Maine in the U.S., accounting for less than 10% of the world's maple syrup. Considering the cultural and economic importance of this natural resource, it should be no surprise that price fixing and substantial theft of maple syrup are, is always transpiring in Quebec, with so much money on the line. The sweet product is just as fiercely contested and guarded as some of recreational drugs end quote so some of these are less known heists and while they all mainly got caught our inner baddies definitely enjoy the stories and i hope you did
0: i enjoyed that very very much
1: (laughs) i knew everyone would i'm like who hasn't thought about this you know like it's the nicest people have thought about doing something like this it doesn't matter it doesn't make you a bad person because you because you you would you've fantasized about it it reminds me of that episode where they were trying to
0: determine certain things and andy goes like would you steal bread to feel feed your family and steve Carell was like no i wouldn't do it because it's wrong because he was trying to impress holly and i'm like i would i'm like yeah. i'm like aladdin i would steal my freaking bread to feel my monkey like i would do it like i it's it's not so black and white whether or not you would do certain things but i just i don't know these were so entertaining and i love the last one just because in my head especially as someone who is colombian and grew up learning about the actual drug cartels and all of that to sit here and be like maple syrup cartel is just really funny to me but hey they take their maple
1: syrup seriously and it's funny you mentioned that too because there were so many other heists that i could have talked about there's an avocado cartel in mexico oh, i
0: love avocados
1: for Haas, avocados 90 percent comes from them so they have people So it's that all about always-
0: the product that is there because in colombia obviously the cocoa plant which was cocaine and that that happened to be their product but if they had been like if they had right. had a lot of avocados, they'd be avocado cartels over there.
1: Where the resources are, there's the chance of the robbery because that's that's money. It's it's about a resource. It's not just straight up robbing a bank. It's what you can get from that. You can sell avocados on the and side really, of the road and make the same money. And really what are you going to do with a maple syrup thing? You're going to put it back? Like You're going to you sell it. Find that? You're going to sell it to distributors that want local you enjoy your stolen maple syrup on your pancakes. In like, the
0: investigative police thought, like, what are they going to do to get it back? You
1: fuck, it's maple syrup, like. Exactly. It's gone. It's there's gone. No, there's no bringing it back. It is gone. As was the money, as was the artwork. We haven't covered a heist, and I was just These dying for one. These were
0: great. Thanks, Christy. That was awesome. Who does that? Who does that? Who does that? Who does that? Favorite HuffPost. And I like this one because... It's about a New York person. And sometimes I don't like reading about New York because I don't want to be like, oh, this person is so stupid and they're from my state. But got to read it. So this just happened on July 21st, which was pretty recent. And the headline reads, New York man fakes death to avoid jail, but typo gives him away.
1: Oh, come on, guy.
0: A Long Island criminal defendant tried faking his death to avoid a jail sentence, but the phony death certificate his lawyer submitted had a glaring spelling error. You can't have spelling errors.
1: And I'm sorry, this is your personal information. How do you have a spelling error? How does well, that work? Let's Please, let's, let's figure us figure. I want to know more. And how
0: did your lawyer not catch it? Like, yeah. how did your lawyer submit it and Equally didn't catch it stupid. himself?
1: Let's just, let's see how dumb these people are. Let's keep going.
0: See, a Long Island criminal defendant tried faking his death to avoid a jail sentence, but the phony death certificate his lawyer submitted had a glaring spelling error that made it a dead giveaway for fraud, prosecutors said Tuesday. Robert Berger, 25, of Huntington, New York, now faces up to four years in prison if convicted in the alleged scheme. That's in addition to pending sentences for earlier guilty pleas to charges of possession of a stolen Lexus and attempted grand larceny of a truck. Punishment prosecutors say he was looking to avoid.